Well, guys, we've all been there before, haven't we? We've known about this sort of particular group that we've wanted to be a part of. The cool crowd, the popular people. We wanted to be part of them in some way, shape, or form. They're doing something we know is wrong, or they're tempting us to do something wrong. And we want to be accepted into the cool crowd, into the popular people. And so we agree. We go along with it, thinking that they'll accept us, and then we'll be happy. We call it peer pressure. So kids, middle school, high school, you're going to know this if you don't already. Peer pressure. The desire to fit in and be accepted is so strong that virtue signaling is difficult even for the pollsters to know what people actually believe. Cancel cultures become a powerful tool. Some of you smoked a cigarette because of it. Right? Some of you had a relationship with someone you knew you shouldn't have. Some of you, maybe when you're in grade school, kind of distanced yourself when you got to high school because your childhood best friend's not in the cool crowd, so you didn't want to be seen with them. Some of you wore clothes that you knew were ridiculous, right? Or you wore your hair, right, in a way that you knew was kind of ridiculous. But you did it to fit in, right? Didn't want to be seen as part of the outside. Wanted to fit in. It's something where we were more aware of in high school, but as we've aged, we've become more sophisticated in the game. It hasn't gone away. It's just become more sophisticated. And so now it's no longer the quarterback slash prom king and the cheerleader slash prom queen that's guiding us, but now it's whatever's trending. Now it's whatever the New York Times or the Washington Post tell us we need to be thinking is right or good or wrong or bad. Now it's whatever the TV movies are telling us is cool. Now it's Whatever our job industry tells us we need to do or not do in order to advance. We've become discipled so well by so many things in the world, we don't even know what we think much anymore because we've become so conditioned by these many voices around us and we want to fit in. And of course, this is not, uh, this is not as though these kinds of things have not reached the church, right? There are churches, there are pastors that tell you to do things that you know are wrong. Or you don't think is wise, or you haven't thought about the consequences, but you know, I might be tempted to go along with it. Peer pressure, or using the language of scripture, the patterns of the world, is a powerful enemy working against the kingdom of God. We'd all be lying if we didn't admit that we are tempted to give up on what Christians have believed the Bible to clearly teach for 2,000 years. We're tempted, uh, we're mindful of things like as women as pastors, adultery, sex outside of marriage, divorce, homosexuality, abortion, transgenderism, all these things. We're tempted to give up on them, right? Because we're being pressured to. And it's interesting that those happen to be the ones that we're tempted to give up on and not say the deity of Christ. The very same things culture is pressuring us to accept. We, we all feel pressured into accepting so that we can fit in. Very little has changed since high school. So what do we do? Going back to the last couple of weeks, Psalm 4 and 5, how do, we, how do we live out all that Jesus commands and still sleep well in a world that's tempting us to loosen up on our convictions that we believe, what Christians have believed for 2,000 years? How do we do that? How do we not rejoice in wrongdoing, but instead rejoice in the truth? How do we, how do we not swerve from the truth? Well, that's the question that God's inerrant and all authoritative word will answer for us from Psalm 5. 
Just a little bit of context for us. We're walking through the Psalms. If you're new here, welcome. Glad you're here. My name is Nathan, one of the pastors here. We've been walking through the Psalms this summer. Uh, the Psalms are anticipating the arrival of Christ. They're in the what we call the Old Testament, the time before the coming of Christ. The Psalms are often prayers that teach us how to live in the covenant. Prayers that teach us how to live in the covenant. These are kind of very much on the ground kinds of prayers that are also instructive to us. And so a little over a month ago, I preached from Psalm 96 about how the nations need to declare the glory of God. Uh, after that, Owen preached from Psalm 47. Y'all remember that about God is king. Uh, and then Joey preached from Psalm 3. Last week, I preached from Psalm 4. This week, I do Psalm 5. Next week, take a wild guess what we'll do. Psalm 6. On till Lord willing, Psalm 11 about Labor Day is where we're going. But hopefully, as we've walked through these psalms, you've seen these psalms are not randomly thrown together. That's the way I used to see the Bible. I just thought sort of sort of like journal accounts. You know, this came and then that happened. But hopefully you're seeing that when we preach through these psalms, they're intentionally woven together like puzzle pieces building off of one another. And Psalm 5 that we come to this morning builds off of the previous few psalms of King David's prayers to sleep well in a world that's raging. You remember Psalm 2 is talking about a world that's raging. Psalm 3 and 4 is building off of Absalom. His own world is raging because he's attacking him. And so here we see how in Psalm 5, how it shows us how to not give in to the raging of the world, but instead walk the straight and narrow road of righteousness. Four points this morning. Here's the, here's the first. Again, we're answering the question, how do Christians not swerve from the truth? First, no surprise. We seek God in prayer. We seek God in prayer. Common theme in Psalms. Notice the first thing at the top of the Psalm there, the the very top. Notice this was not written. This Psalm 5 is not written as a private affair between David and God. David recognizes that the worship of God is never only private. He understands that the Christian life is never just individualized. But it also must be corporate as well. And so as you look at that psalm, guys, don't lose sight of that when we read all of those me's and my's in there. The me's and my's of David are written down and then they're handed to the Connor Nunnally so that we could then sing. That's what he's doing, right? This is the whole, look at that, to the choir master for the flutes. We don't have any flautists in here, not anymore. So this is personal and it's corporate. It's instructive and it's worshipful, as all good teaching should be. But the other thing to notice here is that David isn't offering the psalm in a passive kind of a way. His prayer that he's offering is not just sort of passive. He's not kind of fitting in this prayer on the bus ride down to DuPont Circle as he goes to work. Since he stayed up all night last night binge watching Netflix. No, that's not what he's doing. Right? You'll notice here that he's very eager. He's burdened. In prayer, and he goes to God in that burden. Look at those verses at the very beginning. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Give attention to the sound of my cry. O Lord, in the morning. Not as he sort of fits it in at lunch. In the morning. First thing, he's going. He's burdened. He's going to God. In the morning, he says, you hear my voice. And so he goes to God first thing in the morning, and we see there that he prepares a sacrifice and he watches. I love this. David is basically saying here, listen, I've come to you, God. I've brought my prayers to you, my groans to you. I've prepared my sacrifice, and I'm just going to watch you work now. I've prepared myself. He's not sort of, you know, waking up, going about his day, hope God kind of zaps him with the truth. 
It's not what he's doing. He's prepared himself. And he's now eagerly watching to see God work. He prays with deep burden. He's desperate because he sees danger uh, around him. He knows, by the way, that he's not the only one that's in that danger. Thus, the need to hand the information, the prayer, off to the choir director. And so, guys, if we are going to remain steadfast and not swerve from the truth, we're going to have to learn from David here. We need to be burdened, and we need to not be individualized. We've got to go to God in prayer and then watch him work after we pray. And likewise, if you want to walk in God's righteousness and not love the world, you and I are going to have to be burdened. We're going to have to go to God in prayer. And not just sort of wait for him to work, you know, sort of hope he zaps us, as it were. We go to him, abide to him in prayer. And so we have to be aware of that. Got to go to God in prayer. But where do I get this idea that David is burdened by the world around him? Where, Where do I get this idea that there's raging nations? Where do I get this idea? I mentioned it back in Psalm 2, 3, and 4. But where in this passage might I get this idea that David's burden is to walk in righteousness as the world is raging him to not do that? Where do I get that idea? Well, there's 12 verses in this psalm. David has six requests. We figure out what he really wants just by looking at those six things that he asks for. So take a look at them. He asks for six things. Listen to my prayer. The second one is key. Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make them, make the enemies bear their guilt. Cast them out. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice forever. Spread your protection over them. So you can see, you can kind of start to come out when you just look at all the things that David is asking for. He wants to be heard because his enemies are all around. And he wants to be led and protected in the way of righteousness. While at the same time, he wants the enemies to be held accountable for their attacks on righteousness. Verse 8 really, to me, seems to be a core. Uh, If you're into chiasms, if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. But this sort of seems to be right in the middle of it. Verse 8 really seems to be the heart. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So. David knows that there are enemies of righteousness. He wants those enemies to be held accountable, and he wants to make sure and not go their way. He's tempted to give in. He's tempted to miss the truth. He's tempted to do as they do. He's tempted to kind of fit in with the cool crowd and do things that he maybe shouldn't do. So how do Christians not swerve from the truth? Well, first, we need to go to God in prayer. But secondly, we have to know a few things. Three things in particular. First thing that we need to know is who God is. Second point, we need to go to God in prayer. Secondly, we need to know who God is. We need to know who God is. I count 18 things God, uh, David says about God in these 12 verses. I count 18 things. I could be missing one or two more, but I count 18 things that David says about God in these 12 verses. Take a listen. We're going to just walk through every one of them and do about a 10-minute exposition. I'm just kidding. No, we're not doing that. Here we go. Here's the first one, though. I'm just going to list them all. Look at verse 2. He knows that he is the Lord who is king and his God. Secondly, in verse 3, he knows God will hear his prayer in the morning. He also knows that God will act as he watches. Verse 4, he knows God does not delight in wickedness. Fifthly, that that evil does not dwell with God. Verse 5, he knows that the boastful will not stand before God. 
Seventh, uh, that he knows that God hates evildoers. Verse six, knows that God destroys those who speak lies. He knows, uh, he, uh, he knows that God abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful people. And tenth, verse seven, that God has an abundance of te- steadfast love. Eleventh, that his dwelling place is holy, that he is to be feared. Verse eight, that he knows that God is righteous. Fourteenth, that God has a way and he is able to guide us in it. Fifteenth, verse ten, God is a God of justice. Verse eleven, God is a God of everlasting joy. Seventeenth, he's able to provide protection. And verse twelve, that God is willing and able to bless the righteous. He knows eighteen things. That's just one song about God. David is very God-centered as he lives amidst a raging world. Very God-centered. He's very aware of his enemies and all of the wrongdoing around him, but all of that is subject to what he knows about God. His God-centeredness orders not only his prayer life, but it orders all of David's life in general. God, friends, is not just an accessory to David's life. He's the substance of David's life. God is not a belt or an umbrella to David. It's not, God is not just a tribe that David sort of happens to associate himself. God is not just kind of like a pin of his, like his favorite music group that he puts on his backpack. The Lord is the Lord of David's life and he means to instruct us in the same. And so if you and I are not going to swerve from the truth and bow the knee to whatever is trending as the nation's rage, we are going to have to know who God is and submit ourselves gladly to him. Otherwise, what will happen is in our minds, God will begin to reflect the cool crowd's version of God who oftentimes conveniently happens to agree with everything the world's telling us to agree with. So if we don't endeavor to know who God is, we will begin to fashion a God that we want. If we don't endeavor to know who the God who actually is and submit ourselves to it, we'll begin to fashion a God that we want. Which, by the way, remember, that's exactly what the Israelites did in Exodus 33. So the God who is and the God that we might want, they are oftentimes, friends, not the same. Because our instincts are almost always going to serve ourselves in our group, whatever our group might be. And these days, guys, when we're being blown by winds from every direction into their own version of worldliness, we must labor to know the God who is and not the God who our group might want, as it were. We need to know the God who is objectively true. And so let's just take maybe three of those descriptions of God and sort of compare those from the God who is to the God that maybe we might want. Just evaluate a few of those. Take a look at the one in verse 2 there, for instance. David's understanding of the Lord is my king and my God. So notice two things about that. First, he believes in a God that's personal. My king, my God. God is not some distant figure that is uninvolved in the world. David understands that he governs the nations, but he also is active in our lives. He knows the number of hair on our heads. He hears our prayers. He's working all things together for the good of those that love him. He sees, he hears, he remembers his covenant to his people. God is a personal God, David believes. But secondly, he understands that David is king. David is God. In other words, there's no other gods than the God of the Bible. 
Just as Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. The triune God of the Bible, friends, is king and the only God. David knows that. We need to know that. There is nothing and no one above him. There is none more powerful than him. He shares his glory with no other God or no other idol. Meaning, for instance, that the God of Islam, the God of Judaism, the God of the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they are not God. But also, closer to home, we are not kings. Nathan is not God. Friends, the expressive individualistic culture that we live in has plenty of rooms to allow us to believe in the God of the Bible. You want to identify as Christian? Fine. You want to go to church and read your Bibles? Great. Do what you do. That's fine. But if you begin to say that the God that you believe in makes demands on all people who don't believe that God, well, then they would say you are wrong. You need to repent and believe in the God who is love. Which, by the way, teaches us that they do have an aversion of God that is also authoritative as well. But that's beside the point. But their definition of the God that is love will happen to agree with their worldview, making the God of love the God that fits with what they want to be true, not necessarily what is true. Some of you might be asking, well, Nathan, how do we know that the one that we believe is not just, you know, happens to be the one that is our little version? Well, I think Tim Keller helps us when he says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Therefore, friends, be careful that the God you believe in is in fact king and God and not some Frankenstein character that has been constructed by yourself or those in reality or those around you. And in reality is really that God, that kind of version of God is really submitted to you as king. David prays to the God who is king and is God, and he's endeavoring to bow before his holy temple and not trying to get him to conform to him. But next, let's drill down on another one. If we're not going to swerve from the truth amidst the raging nations, we're going to have to see and be thankful for the fact that God does not delight in wickedness. You see that in verse 4. That's He believes in a God that does not delight in wickedness, that evil may not dwell with him. By the way, we need to know what evil is, right? Which we're going to say as Christians is defined in God's word. That evil may not dwell with him, that the boastful won't stand before him, and that he, notice the word, hates evil doers. And guys, you can see I'm, I'm just reading the Bible. It's a straightforward reading of the text. So we're tempted to think that the Lord is a little bit like a late night talk show host. You ever notice late night talk show hosts? They're always amazed at their guests and their guests never do anything wrong and everything they say is funny, right? And they never want to kind of bother them or say anything wrong. Uh, never try to disagree with them. So thankful that they just gave them a few minutes of their time. God's not like that. Or we might be tempted to think that God is love, which means he's sort of like a nice old man that doesn't really want to inconvenience anybody. And we're told that uh, nowadays we're told that God would never hate since he is love. And yet right there, it's just as clear as it can be, isn't it, friends? Apparently God does hate. He hates evildoers and the evil and those that are evil like that may not dwell with him. 
Now, some of you may be saying, okay, well, all right, Nathan, I guess that's true. God, God hates Adolf Hitler, right? He hates the terrorists. That's true. All right, we got room for that. My friend, David is comforted in knowing not only that God hates the Adolf Hitlers or the terrorists of the world, that's the bloodthirsty, he lists them there, but also notice he does not delight in wickedness of any kind. That evil may not dwell with him. Have you ever known or done anything? Have you ever participated in something that was wicked or evil? I have plenty of times. David goes on even. He says that the boastful, right? Verse 5, those who speak lies. Ever boasted? Ever been prideful? Ever told a lie before? That's all of us. All of us have boasted in ourselves. All of us have spoken lies. And so the God who is, is not like some big plush unicorn that you get from a carnival. All cuddly in that sense. He is warm. He is tender. He is gentle. But he's also mighty and awe-inspiring. He is love, but he also he he also hates. Guys, he has to. Right? He has to. You cannot be love unless you hate. Right? The way in which I show my wife that I love her is I hate everything that's gonna try to get in the way of our covenantal love. I'm not like, you know, somebody that maybe wants to do something with me or my wife that might disrupt that, be like, well, I'm love, so just sort of do whatever you want. No, I say, no, get out of the way, right? That's the way I show my love is by hating. And so God hates evil, wickedness, bloodthirsty, even down to the level of pridefulness and lying. That's a straightforward reading of that passage, friends. So if we are not going to swerve from the truth but arrive in the blessing of God as David does, we must go to God in prayer. We must see him as he is, not how we might want him to be. And what we find is, is that he is king and he is God. It's not us. And he doesn't tolerate everything from murder to lies. He hates it. And those who commit it have no place with him in heaven. But then there's one more thing that's worth drawing out for us. That's right there in verse 7. We see that the God that is has an abundance of steadfast love. That's the Old Testament God, by the way. Has an abundance of steadfast love. And that word for steadfast love, most of our churches heard this word before. It's that word chesed. You've got to get back in the back of your throat. Chesed. It's what that word is. It's, it's such a word that's so rich that even the English word, we, have, we need like two or three word, words to describe it. It means covenant loyal love. It's this rich Hebrew word. God is God and king. He does hate evil. And he is full of covenant loyal love. We are right, friends, to emphasize the loving kindness of God. It is a critical aspect of who God is. Again, we tend to think that love and hate must be divided from one another, but we see they must necessarily go together. Because God is love, he then abhors what is wrong. So in a similar way, again, as I anything that would attack my love for my wife, I, I need to hate anything that would get in the way of that. It is the abundant covenant loyal love that makes for God to reveal himself to us in his word and tell us who he is and tell us who we are without him. He is a covenant loyal love as is evidenced by the fact that he tells us what is evil and what is good. That's so kind of God. He's not like a a wooden idol that's constructed and put up on a pedestal that doesn't talk. But he tells us the truth. 
It is God's abundant, steadfast love that is able to guide us in his ways and keep us out of our own ways so that we might enjoy the wonder of his love. This is why, friends, it's not hard for David, a king himself, to bow down to this king and take refuge in him because he knows that the God that is is full of steadfast love. That he knows his commands are good and gracious because of who he is as a God of steadfast love. The God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, friends, is not some sadistic, quick-tempered, easily angered God. But the God of the Bible has abundant, loyal love that he freely offers to all sinners, great and small, that come to him in faith. And so we see God's abundant, covenant, loyal love most clearly in the Father giving his Son to sinners like me and you. Do you need any more evidence than that? Y'all have heard me say this before. I love my kids and I love you, but you can't have my son. I will not give him to you. If I, if I need to, if you're somebody, somebody needs to die for your sin, I mean, this is not theologically possible, but if it were, you can't have Judah or Elisha. I'm sorry, you're going to have to die. But God gave us his son. That's how much love he has. And so as the world rages, friends, if we are not going to swerve from the truth, we must go to God in prayer in the morning, pleading with him, uh, prioritizing that. And we must know, secondly, who he is and who he's not. And then thirdly, we must know who our enemies are. Got to go to God in prayer, got to know who God is, and then got to know who our enemies are. Remember the occasion for the psalm, verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Why? Because of my enemies. So if we're not going to swerve from the truth, we're going to have to know who God is, and we're going to have to know who these enemies are that are pressing in around us to make us swerve. And oftentimes, by the way, most of the time, as is David's enemies are the case, they're not going to be atheists. We've talked a little about these enemies already, so I'm not going to labor here too long. But as David listed 18 realities about God, we find that he lists five realities about his enemies. Five things that describe his enemies. You can see those in verse 9 and 10. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. They've rebelled not against David as such, but against God. That's verse 10. David knows his enemies. He knows who they are. He knows what they're like. Do you? It's easy to believe that, you know, somebody is well-intentioned and kind, that they're not an enemy. But David gives us a more complete description. He's aware of what who enemies are and what they're like. And let me try to clear up some of this language, right, because it's a little bit difficult to understand so when he says there's no truth in their mouth what he means there is they're not reliable and why are they not reliable it's that next line tells us why they're not reliable because deep in their hearts is destruction they're not reliable because their compass is off they have a broken compass and so just like a broken clock is right two times a day so an enemy of god might be right here and there but their compass their heart their core is off Jesus says this in Mark 7, 21. He says to all the people, for from within, out of the heart of man, out of the heart of mankind, Jesus is making a statement about mankind. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Out of the heart, Jesus says. 
So this is what David means. For those that haven't been given a new heart in Christ, the counsel that they give is unreliable because their compass is broken. Their heart is broken. In fact, Paul picks up verse 9 in Romans 3. Paul quotes Romans, uh, sorry, Romans Psalm 5 verse 9. He quotes in Romans 3 to say that all humanity is broken, not seeking God, no, not one. So the basic instincts of humanity can't be trusted at the core because we're broken, we're selfish, we're bad, we're not interested in God as king. Therefore, our tongues say all kinds of unhelpful things that are ultimately uh, are in direct rebellion against God. Now, you might be asking, well, Nathan, there's a lot of enemies that like that that are not terrible people. That's true. Right? Mankind is not as bad as we might be. That's true. And our enemies, again, it's not as though they can't ever tell the truth. But again, we're talking about the fact that they're core, they're broken. That's what David seems to know about his enemies. So this idea of mankind at his core being basically bad, not basically good, is diametrically opposed to what we're taught oftentimes, isn't it? We would say, yeah, there's a few bad apples, but overall, humanity is basically good. And yet, when we were small children, did anybody have to teach us how to lie, cheat, steal, disrespect mom and dad? Did anybody have to teach any of you that? No. What do we have to teach them? How to not do those things, right? So the world we see, the word describes the world in which we find. As it is, maybe not how we might want it to be. And so it describes the nature of humanity. Honestly, we, we need to know God. We need to know the enemy. And when we look at it, we find a shocking reality. It, if this describes humanity and we are human, then these enemy aspects, they describe us. They describe me. They describe you. Maybe you're not bloodthirsty. Maybe you haven't murdered. But again, you have lied. You have been boastful. And look what David says. What, look what David wants for them. Even to, for us, to a degree. What does he want? He wants them to bear their own guilt. To have them fall by their own counsel. Because of their transgressions, he wants them to be cast out. Now, notice something really important about all of those things. Where does David understand the guilt to lie? He understands that the guilt lies on them, right? Not on God, not on the culture. They can't blame shift it in any way. It's on them. Make them bear their guilt. Let them fall by their own counsel. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. Friends, you need to know that no, the, when, for those of us that are, arrive in heaven, none of us will deserve to be there. There will be nobody other than God himself that will be in heaven that deserves to be there. But everybody in hell deserves to be there. We see that from this passage. Reality is, guys, sometimes we get tripped up about the doctrine of hell because I think we don't understand properly who God is and who the enemies of God are. We don't have those things clear in our minds. We don't understand who humanity is apart from Christ. We, we tend, all of us, are, are, are tended to adopt a view of God and man that fits the culture more than Christ. God is often maybe small and cuddly or, on the opposite end, short-tempered and tight-fisted. While man is generally thought to be nice and well-intentioned. Therefore, when we read about hell, it sounds so unfair. But in reality, when we compare ourselves to the God who is, this holy God, not just the one we might want, we find that hell is a just punishment. 
difficult though it is to understand at times. We love that God is just. We should. But do we love that he is just when it applies to someone we love? Or to ourselves even? Because if we don't, then we are conforming to the patterns of the raging nations that teach us to follow our own counsels. But if we do, then we reveal ourselves to be more like David, who understood that enemies were all around. That they are surprisingly numerous and surprisingly nice and well-intentioned at times. And yet at the same time, more interested in following their own counsel than God's. More interested in following their own ways than God's ways. More interested in getting their own glory, not giving God his glory. More interested in rebelling against the God that made them and invites them to himself than they are in obeying God and enjoying him forever. Therefore, like David, we should want them to repent and to believe. Call them to that. But if not, like any criminal, they should receive a just punishment from a just God. Not from us, from God. And so how do Christians not swerve from the truth amidst the raging nations? We've got to go to God desperately in prayer day after day. We've got to know who God is. And thirdly, we've got to know who the enemies are. And the enemies are those people that choose to rebel against God by choosing to follow their own counsels instead of repenting and coming to Christ and following his counsel by grace. And that leads to the final thing that David knows amidst the raging nations. He knows God. He knows his enemy. And thirdly, he knows who he is. So the fourth thing we need to know, we need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know who God is. We need to know who the enemies are. We need to know who we are in Christ. David here lists eight things about himself and the people of God. I'll be brief here, but they're critical for us to know if we're going to persevere amidst the raging nations. Just look at them. First thing David knows uh, about himself is he knows his own place. So while he is a king, he understands that he is not the king and he is not God. David recognizes his place is below God, no matter how important he might appear to the world. David knows his place. And so we need to be sensitive to the ways that we might think too highly of ourselves and not recognize our place as glad subjects of a good and gracious God and king. Know our place. And second thing David knows, he knows his own sin. You can see that in verse 3 when he prepares a sacrifice. Sacrifices are offered to God on behalf of sinners. They serve as kinds of substitutes, an offering to a holy God. So notice that David, even in his anointing as a king of Israel, he does not uh, come to God as though he earns it. David doesn't come to God and say, well, God, you know, since I am the anointed king and all, and, you know, since I am, you know, a man after your own heart, uh, I got a few things I need to ask you, right? It's not what he does. He prepares a sacrifice. He recognizes he needs a substitute in order to enter into the presence of God. And then he needs to wait to the God to act, to to the one true God. He knows his sin. He has sin in himself. Therefore, he recognizes that in order to be heard, he needs atonement. And guys, so must we. We have to know we need atonement. We need sacrifice to go to God and be heard. We are all like the enemies of David. We all have an abundance of sin. We have all lied. We have all delighted in wickedness. We have all done evil in some ways. We all, apart from Christ, cannot stand in front of a holy God. Therefore, we trust the sacrifice, don't we? 
We don't kill animals. And nor are our sacrifices our good deeds. We trust in the sacrifice of Christ alone. To allow us to come to God and be heard. We don't trust our work. We trust Jesus' finished and faithful work on the cross to make us presentable to God. To be able to stand, not just sort of as a, you know, someone that can stand and not die, but someone that can stand and be glad to be in God's presence. We must know ourselves and we must know our place and our sin, which leads to our trust in Christ's righteousness, not ourselves. That's the third thing David knows about himself. He knows where his righteousness lies. We saw this last week, but there it is again. Look at verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in whose righteousness? Your righteousness. David knows that he has no righteousness in and of himself. He trusts the Lord's righteousness. David understands something of what we now call imputed righteousness. A righteousness that has been decreed or credited to us in faith. And we know that that's what David understood. Because again, look back in Psalm 4.1. Answer me when I call Oh, God of my righteousness, God's righteousness that had been decreed, credited to him by faith. Look at verse seven. How does he come to God? But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. It doesn't say, but I, since I'm the man after your own heart, and I'm pretty good. I go to church most Sundays when I'm in town and I read my Bible almost every day. It's not what he says. Your steadfast love. I trust you. That I can come in and be heard and accepted and loved. So it is with us in the gospel. If you're not a Christian, you need, you need to know this. This is the heart of what we believe. It's what we celebrate. You heard us sing about it. As God lifts up his face and shines it upon us, he gives the Christian eyes to see the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And by that grace to have eyes to see our sin and his holiness, we trust the righteousness of Christ to be credited to us. As we trust Christ to bear our sin on the cross. That great and beautiful exchange. Jesus' faithful life and obedience counted to us. Our sin on the cross counted to him. This great exchange is what we call, Christians call, justification. Another way of saying that is we are righteous-fied. Not because of anything that we have done. We're the opposite. We've done all wrong. We are just like the enemies. But by grace, through faith... In Christ, we are counted righteous. Were it not for his uh, grace, we would be left to be just like all of those enemies. And so what it is we know, if you're not a Christian and you hear like, man, you, Nathan, you, you dudes are arrogant. No, whatever it is I have is only because of what God has shown me in his word. He's done all of the work. I'm a fool apart from him. And so if we're not going to swerve, we must know our place. We must know our sin. We must know where our righteousness lies in Christ. David saw that looking forward in faith. We see it looking back at the cross. And from that righteousness, we we then can come boldly to the throne of grace. And then the fourth thing we need to know about ourselves, we need to to know that we need counsel. Verse 8, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. We don't assume we always know the right way to go. We shouldn't. We're broken. Even in Christ, right? We're in Christ positionally, but we still need to be sanctified. David knows that. He knows his enemy is powerful. And so since he knows his place, he goes to God pleading his righteousness, not his own, in order to walk in his ways. David wants to walk in God's ways, not in his own ways. 
And guys, with the amount of confusion in the world and in light of the pervasiveness and the power of our enemies, we need daily counsel from the Lord to know how to live and how to love, how how to disciple our children, where to go to church, what to read, what not to read, what to agree with, what not to agree with, what to love, what not to love. We, We have been discipled so well by the world in so many ways. We need to see the danger as David does. Go to God in prayer, pleading God's righteousness, given to you, ask him for counsel to right, walk in the right ways. Know that he'll hear and he'll answer us and also know about yourself, Christian, where your joy is found. You need to know something about yourself. Fifthly, where your joy is found. David knows his enemy is powerful and deceptive, promising all kinds of happiness. But there, all the more he knows God and that those who take refuge in the one true God, he knows they'll find everlasting joy. He knows that about himself, that if I go to God, I'm going to find everlasting joy. Look at verse 11. You can see it right there. Beloved, don't believe that joy is found by being accepted by the world. Believe, as David does, that eternal joy is found in the eternal God, who's the fountain of joy, who loves to give good gifts to his children. Believe that joy is found in him by believing that his commands are for your good. And by doing so, you'll not swerve from the truth, but instead come to rejoice in the Lord alongside the rest of the redeemed forever. Know where your joy is found. And six, you love his name. Something you need to know, Christian, about yourself. You love his name. You can see that there in verse 11 as well. Those who love your name may exult or rejoice in you. Christian, you have been given God's righteousness by Christ's sacrifice on the cross in your place. You and I deserved hell and he gave you heaven by no merit of our own. All by his grace and mercy. Therefore, how could you not love his name? Which is to say, when it says love his name, what that means there is love who he is. Love what he's like. You do love his name, right? You love who he is. What he's like. We ought not be embarrassed by the God of salvation. I'm tempted to do that every day. Happened to me just this week in a conversation with some people in the community. I was tempted to be embarrassed. No, no, no. I love, I love his name. I don't need to be embarrassed of it. We ought not wish that he was more accepting here or there. We love his name because his name is what made us who we are and where we're going. We are Christians. We've been given his name, grace to us. We are not ashamed of his name. We love his name. And because you love his name, because you do, you therefore, seventh, something you need to know about yourself, Christian, is you're covered, you're protected. David prays for protection of all God's people in verse 11, not just, the, not just himself. Verse 12, you cover him with favor as with a shield. I want to be clear about this, guys. I know you're kind of, I'm getting long here, so just come back in with me. This doesn't mean that because you're covered, nothing's bad, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. That's not what David means. Let's think about this. How many bad things happen to David? Way, way more than probably any of us ever will have bad stuff happen to us. Jesus had tons of bad happen to him. So just because you're protected doesn't mean that everything's going to go great. What it does mean is that he'll protect us from ever swerving from the truth fully or finally. In other words, He'll get us home. He'll get us home. We're protected from that. 
No weapon formed against him will stand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We must, as we learned a few weeks back, we must keep ourselves in the love of God as he ultimately is the one that keeps us to the end. He protects us. No, Christian, you're covered. You're protected. Eighth and finally, thing you need to know about yourself. Christian, you're blessed. You need to know that you're blessed. Know your place, know your sin, know your righteousness, know your need for counsel, know your joys in the Lord, know you, you love the name of God, know that you are protected, know then because you're protected in Christ, you are blessed. I love thinking about this. David wrote amidst the din of the enemy in the background in verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. And he does, doesn't he? Doesn't he bless us? He does. And why would we ever want to swerve from this truth, from this gospel, from this Jesus? So, beloved, David was aware of all that was going on around him. He knew there was no, he knew that there was temptation from his enemies. He knew there was temptation to swerve from the truth. And so he went to God in the morning and because he did, he knew he, he knew who God was. He knew behind the lies who the enemy was. He knew who he was in the Lord. And so you need to ask yourself the question. We need as a church to ask ourselves the question. Do we know these same things? Do as David does. Go to him in the morning. Prepare your sacrifice. Trust in Jesus and watch him act. And soon enough, beloved, he'll get us home. He'll get us home. And we'll be glad that we didn't swerve. We'll be glad that we asked him to lead us in his righteousness. And that he got us home. All by his grace and mercy. And nothing because of us. And so as David prayed. Let's now ask God. Amidst the raging sirens. uh, To go. How metaphorical. To go to him now in prayer. Lord. Even as we hear these sirens that have been tripped off for no good reason, we're mindful of a raging world. It's easy to be distracted, easy to be coerced, easy to go the wrong way, easy to be tempted to kind of fit in. And so we pray, verse 8, God, lead us in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before us. And thank you for the securing of it all in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.